0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Do you wish for a more fulfilling, erotic, and sexual life? The journey begins here. This is The Sexual Voice with your host, Jessica Ford. As a relationship psychotherapist working with individuals and couples for decades, Jessica knows how to create and support meaningful relationships. Along with her guests, Jessica expands the lens of sex therapy, connecting you with a more satisfying and healthier sexual self. Now, here is Jessica Ford.
2: Welcome to today's episode of The Sexual Voice. Can we outrun our genetic hardwiring, sex and technology? When I wrote that, I think I'd been watching way too many Doctor Who or Star Trek, and all I envisioned is this brain that's emitting these thoughts. And so, uh, trying to capture the meaning, because when I think of technology, I think of these little uh, psychic waves or shall we say, microwaves. But I'm your host today, Jessica Ford. And we're going to be looking at internet hookups, dating, texting, sexing, and a very light touch of porn. So I'm gonna begin the show with a little bit of stories, but more kind of guiding it through these different topics. And these are all based on what I've been hearing in my office over the last five years, certainly. So I'm going to say more women come to me than men on this particular topic, and that's internet, internet dating or hookups. And they come usually because they're distressed. They're distressed over the fact that they have been online trying to connect with someone, their soulmate or their next long-term partner, hopefully maybe a husband. And what's happened is maybe through kind of continued texting or emailing, they finally meet the guy and probably sometimes not, but have sex. And then they never hear from them again. And this becomes really quite disturbing. Because one, all too often they think, what is it about me? Did I do something? Or, obviously the person hasn't called them or responded back to them and they think, you know, did he die? You <laughs> Did he have a horrible catastrophe befall him? So this becomes a whole level of distress. Then kind of looking at um, this one woman who came and she had met the guy and they'd had this wonderful weekend together. And he calls her then on Monday morning at 6.30 in the morning to break up with her. You know, she was like, what is this about? And this was kind of at least the guy had called. But, you know, what is going on that uh, when we finally meet after this great connection through emailing and texting, nothing happens. Couples come to me around the issue of texting and sexing. And texting engages us in many ways emotionally because it stirs us up as we constantly are waiting for the other to reply. And I see a lot of clients who engage in these texting infidelities. And some of these are just flirtatious and others are far more suggestive. And it's this ante- the anticipation of the reply that is so exciting. And while the initial t- uh, text can begin slowly with a few, maybe at one or two a day, it seems to rapidly increase. And before you know it, what happens is the partner uh, conveys that her husband is up all night and or up late into the night. And this becomes obviously quite distressing for them. The texter's defense is, but we never touched. And I will often add, but you got far more from this experience than just the touching. What you got was the ability to connect with someone. Many times they were almost a stranger initially, but you were able to connect with someone emotionally at the end that your partner or wife had found out about. And as far as porn, porn is both negative and positive. And there's certainly a lot of controversy right now around porn. Is it an addiction or, or whatever? But its it does have an educational component to it. And sometimes it's negative, but sometimes it can be positive. And it is a huge influence in how men and women view having sex. Men call a lot about this topic uh, addiction. They'll call and say, do you work with porn addiction? And they'll usually say, after we've chatted just very briefly, that they'll call back or sometimes they schedule an appointment. But more times than not, they cancel or sometimes they don't show at all. But when one does keep an appointment, it's always because their wife has found out. And I'm going to say more times than not. Again, most of the men calling has been someone has found out and the wife or partner has threatened to leave unless they got help. Most men that I've talked to don't really see it as an addiction when they're really asked, do you feel it's an addiction? But their partners almost always do. And the other part of this growing trend around porn is a large number. It's like almost 38% of young adolescent girls, are waxing off their pubic hair. And research is showing that this is leading to increased infections and other difficulties. And they're doing this because the men that they're with often see pubic hair as an unpleasant, unattractive feature. And they often, even these women report that they've been told they were dirty because they have pubic hair. So, there's also what I call porn sex. And this is where uh, men think that uh, drilling and pounding their way to somewhere is something that women might like. And I want to assure all the men who might be listening out there to please ask your partner if they want it hard and fast today or if they want it slow and gentle. Because... I've never spoken with a woman who says she likes to be pounded on a regular basis. So we have two extraordinarily accomplished guests today, and I'm very excited about this. Uh, not the guests that I've had on the show so far have met this criteria, and really wonderful having them. But I've asked my guests to consider these some of these questions: Does technology limit the v- human? connection and will technology change or possibly alter and maybe even enhance intimate connections and our ability to form a stable and physical uh, emotional relationship and what might they say about where is the emotional and sexual voice in any of this so without any delay it is a real pleasure to introduce my first guest dr alexander solomon she is an assistant clinical professor in the department of psychology at northwestern university in chicago and a licensed clinical psychologist at the family institute at northwestern university her the course that she teaches building loving and lasting relationships marriage 101 is internationally renowned And her first book, Loving Bravely, 20 Lessons of Self-Discovery to Help You Get the Love You Want, will be published in February 2017. I urge you to check out her website, www.dralexandrasolomon.com, and to learn more about her work and what she's doing. So it is a pleasure to welcome you, Alexandra. Thank you for joining the episode today, and taking the time to to make this possible. And when I first reached out to you a few months ago, it was in part because of an article I'd read on the Psychotherapy Network. And you had written, Inside Hookup Culture, Are We Having Fun Yet? And I wanted to say what really touched me was that it was a reflection of the things that I hear in my office. And... So this is very timely. And I know that your work primarily is with millennials. Uh, and I, in this article, you wrote "They're loving out of alignment, which I thought was interesting, because you see their actions don't line up with what their stated intentions or desires and beliefs are. So it was kind of intriguing. And also millennials are very success driven. But I guess that's been somewhat imposed on their families to become successful. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start out asking you, uh, how is technology affecting the millennials that you work with? And is it any different in other age groups?
3: Yeah. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be with you. And this is a topic that has become Really, quite uh, near and dear to my heart, and I, you know, I began my career as a much more traditional sort of marriage and ther- marriage and family therapist and researcher and um, and faculty member. And the longer I taught this course, the Marriage 101 course that we offer to our undergraduate students, the more I realized that um, that as um, that I need to really be understanding the impact of technology on younger adults so technology um, entered my life at a relatively later stage in my own development um, and so my so I am part of you know what we would call a digital immigrant right I'm a digital immigrant. Those of us who are in our um, 30s 40s, 50s and beyond are digital immigrants. We spent large portions of our lives without moving from space to space to space with a handheld Device that's connected to the entire world. Um, and then, you know, folks in their 20s and younger are digital natives. They, they really won't know um, love and intimate relationships um, without, outside of technology. And so I end up in much of my day feeling like a translator, sort of translating back and forth between digital immigrants and digital natives, and I think it's a really important space to be, and I think there's much to be learned and understood from both sides, um, but what I really was seeing and hearing, uh, especially in my Marriage 101 classroom, is a, um, a real need, more than ever, to support um, young adults growing their relational self awareness, having space and time to understand what it means to turn your attention inward, read your bodily bodily cues, read your emotional cues, understand at a really bone deep level where your boundaries are, and from that place enter in and make choices um, sexually and relationally. And the degree to which all of us continue to live more and more in this very fast-paced, technology-driven information age, where at any second in time we can be scrolling through any number of our news feeds, um, we live pretty distracted. We're pretty checked out. We're pretty non-present. That is becoming more and more our default setting. And... Um, while there certainly are incredible benefits of what our technology is able to offer us and what we're able to do now that wasn't possible, you know, before, <clears throat> what it, what it is to me is a real call to action. It's, a, it's um, Technology is giving us an opportunity to insist that we value turning inward and reflection. And um, we know that solitude, looking within, being mindful, listening to what's happening within us, that's the foundation for intimacy, right? I can't truly connect to you unless I can hear and work with what's going on inside of me. So, uh, young adults, re- all of us, but young adults especially, need and deserve space and time to, under- to really understand that, to understand um, how to honor their bodies, um, and I think, you know, the question, can we ra- outrun our genetic hi- hardwiring, I think the answer to me is a resounding no, and I don't think we really want to. I think that it, um, it's a time for us to practice discernment and to, um, to really honor, honor our genetic hardwiring because it's what makes us human, right? We, from the moment we're born, we are five sensory beings. We attach to our um, parents and our caregivers in a very five sensory way, right? Their touch, their smell, the sound of their voice. That is literally how we wire our neurology um, and how we come to understand love and safety and closeness and trust is, is, through, is from our bodies up, right? Our bodies are the first template for wiring up who we are emotionally and how we understand who we are psychologically.
2: And well, what? I'm so- I'm Go I'm th- I'm thinking that again for these women who come to the office who've had an initial contact, you know, they've they've met someone online, they've engaged, and they're um, they're eager to meet this person. They're very excited, and then the first physical contact they have with them, it falls apart, and uh, this is devastating because and and they're. They're so ready for whatever it is that they're hoping for. And so I I can hear what you're saying, how important it is to know what it is we need to take that risk to be vulnerable. And they're doing that, but doing that maybe in in a way that um, doesn't quite fit who they are at the time. Or is it that, you know, what is going on for them? And, And I'm sure you must be seeing this uh, in your classroom, you know, in in the course that you're teaching, as you say, with with the millennials, but you know, these are younger women. But this idea of the hookups, you know, or the texting or the meeting, you know, it doesn't always play out favorably for them. Well, there's there's a kind of there's a
3: kind of um, logic that I hear my um, my students use and, and my therapy clients as well. There's a kind of logic which is, um, and it, it feels it feels like logic um, in the moment to them, which is. I need to make sure there's sexual chemistry before I expose myself emotionally. Why am I going to invest unless there's a sexual connection? And when they say that, when, when students and young people say that to me, they really do mean it. It is literally an attempt to solve a problem. The problem is that love makes us really freaking emotionally vulnerable and it scares us and love can hurt us. So I really get that. Um, if I'm going to get naked with you emotionally, that feels more terrifying than getting naked with you physically. So let's just get that out of the way, and if that's good, then we can back our way into emotional intimacy. And so, so for me, a lot of the work is kind of breaking that down and looking at it differently and understanding that, um, that our, well, my belief and my experience is our, the truest expression of our erotic self is an alignment of body and heart and mind, and um, and certainly we can have sex that is purely in that physical way, um, but then, then we ought not expect, I think we ought not expect that that can lead us to a place of emotional, um, you know, emotional safety, so... I think, I, mean, there's a lot, I think there's a lot going on. I think one thing that gets going is that, is that people really do feel like they know each other, right? They'll spend weeks and maybe even months texting back and forth. And so there's a really felt sense that I know you. So, of course, by the time we meet, I'm ready to have sex with you because I really know you. We've gone back and forth sometimes for many hours a day. So sort of checking in, sending cute things back and forth. So it really does feel like there's closeness and safety. I think the thing that we're... We're finding what the research has shown us is that who we are online, our online self, um, is not quite our face-to-face, three-dimensional, real-life self.
2: No, and I and I understand that there are actually more rules out there about you know it's it's better to not text or prolong email contact until you first meet, and it's better to meet in you know in the early stages of a connection as opposed to waiting. So uh, I find this intriguing that there's this whole. Uh, kind of protocol list, as it were, of, of behaviors that we should be, in, you know, we should be looking at. Um, and I'm also thinking, again, I go back to this generational piece uh, that many of the women that I've seen in the office are certainly in their 40s and 50s. And so a very different stage of their life, and you're right, they've, they've had this prolonged contact with someone before they've met, and they do feel this intimate connection, but you're right. it is not intimacy. Mm-hmm. and uh, so um, are there any uh, are there any cases that stand out in your mind that you've worked with? because I know you have a pretty full practice as well.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I want to add one
3: gender piece, and then I do want to, I do want to talk through a case a little bit. Um, the gender piece I would add is I, I think that there's a way that women in the dating world feel an intense amount of pressure, that if I don't sleep with him, somebody else will. And so I, so not, and I think there certainly are times where women um, you know, sleep with a partner very early on in the relationship because it feels really good and really right, and they desire that kind of an experience. So I... I really try not to get into a value judgment place of what one should do or one shouldn't do. But it's all about, to me, returning to um, returning to self and being willing to like peel back the layers of the onion and look at what's driving my behavior. And if what's driving my behavior is a fear-based thought that if I don't have sex with him on the first date, he's going to pick up and go and find somebody else who does then I feel like that person really deserves space and time to explore that thought and unpack it and wonder about how that thought came to be that way and how does it serve and who would you be without the thought. So um, so I think there's lots and lots of um, very loud, there's a lot of voices and a lot of messages about what one shouldn't do or one, what one should do. And so I think that's so much of what our therapy is about these days is helping people return to self. What is my deepest truth? I, I can see my friend. My friend hooks up, and she doesn't get hurt, and she handles it really well, and I can't hook up because my heart gets champlied. Okay, good. So you know that about you. So now let's figure out how you align your actions to fit and honor what you know to be true about who you are.
2: And this is what you're saying is the authentic self, and yeah. to know that is, is a critical piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there just a, a brief story that you could share with us that might... Uh... So
3: a therapy client of mine was, um, she was in, an, uh, in a relationship and um, with a guy that she really cared, this is, this is the sort of, yes, so she was with a guy, um, cared about him deeply, and he cheated. And it was uh, a one-night drunken mistake. Um, and she really, and they both desperately wanted to rebuild the relationship. He felt awful about it. He was drunk, it was foolish, it was, Um, and he wanted to repair, and she wanted to repair. And they were long-distance. And they worked really hard to try to reestablish trust. He he worked through his apologies. She really worked on forgiving. They talked about boundaries. Um, they They were on their phones each and every night trying so hard to work this thing through. And week after week, she was so frustrated with herself that she couldn't get beyond it, and she couldn't let it go. And what was wrong with her? And at one point, I just wondered about what is the impact of trying to heal an infidelity when you don't have the ability to be face-to-face, body-to-body, and do it that way. So they were trying to, you know, they were physically apart. They were in a long-distance relationship, and they're trying to make a repair, and a repair is all about trust, and trust is one of those five sensory kinds of things, right? So I can say in my brain that I trust you, and I can See on my, even on the screen of my phone, I can see the tears in your eyes. I can see that you 're really being authentic with me right now, and I want to believe you, but it was like there was something holding holding it back, and I really wondered if it was just that he couldn't he couldn 't touch her he couldn't they, they couldn 't put their bodies in the same place in order to regulate to each other. so we know that, um, that we need body to body contact and i 'm not even talking about sexual contact, but just body to body contact we're soothing, to soothe ourselves in the presence of our partner, to soothe each other. And that's a, a really important piece of an intimate relationship, and certainly an intimate relationship that is trying to reestablish trust. And so I really felt for these two young people who were working so very hard to rebuild something that they both cared about, and it seemed to me they were kind of um, backed into a corner by the limitations of geography and technology. Um, that they couldn't. That was a powerful example of how they really couldn't outrun their genetics. They couldn't outrun their hardwiring, which really is about um, five sensory experiences of each other.
2: Oh, that's that's a sad story, but uh, certainly a great story. And and we know that trust can be rebuilt through consistency. But you're right. Uh-huh. There is the benefit of uh, touch and and healing. We're going to go for a break, and we'll be right back with our next guest.
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: A wave of change is happening in our world now. A new feminine way of leadership is emerging, yet this is not about women taking over. This rise of the feminine is helping men too. Join host Gina Lazenby, award-winning businesswoman, best-selling author, and speaker on feminine wisdom as she reports on the rise of the feminine with inspiring stories of women who are coming into their own and finding their unique purpose. Tune in and join this conversation in the rise of the feminine each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Listening to The Sexual Voice with Jessica Ford. To reach our show today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to The Sexual Voice at jafordgroup.com. Now, back to The Sexual Voice.
2: We're back uh, with our next guest, Dr. Paul Joannatis. And he is a research psychoanalyst and, I might say, an amazing writer. Uh, he is the author of Guide to Getting It On, which is an award-winning book on sex that is used and across the country in, uh, in multiple language, I think it's been uh, released in, uh, in sex education courses. matter of fact, when I took the course at the University of Guelph in Ontario, uh, that was right at the top of the list of books. And he has won a lot of praise for this book and from Rolling Stone, Playboy, and Oprah. Uh, he's also created a 90 seconds on sex series for Playboy on Sirius Radio. Uh, he writes on sex for sex for psychology today. And the NCAA approved Paul to speak to college athletes on sexuality. Uh, certainly sure that was beneficial. I urge you to uh, check out his website, um, because his videos on his website that he's created, my favorite is the clitoris, there's also my foreskin, and I think you had one, Paul, on kissing, and I didn't see that again, but that one I really enjoyed. So. Paul, thank you so much for being here today and sharing with the listeners your insights.
4: Well, thank you for having me. Uh,
2: your work really has been what I you know consider positive sex health, and it's commendable. Um, and looking at our topics uh, that we've all experienced in one way in our different offices, uh, interested in knowing what your you know, what your take is on sex and technology. And I've been reading uh, Aziz, uh, book, Aziz Ansari's book, Modern Romance. And he sees uh, texts and emails as basically a neat way to archive our relationships, he says. And it can help broaden and deepen our discussions sometimes around our relationships. But the thing that I found interesting, he said online dating might be considered an introduction service, which is kind of fun. So what do you see...
4: Well, um, I, you know, I just don't know too much about that. Uh, what I would tell you is when I first started writing my book, technology was very different. Um, people still phoned. If you asked someone out on the date, they still sort of had dates, and you phoned. So And, and there were videos as opposed to... Uh, there, there was no DSL at the time, so... Uh, a phone was something that that uh, is either hardwired or was the size of a brick if it was uh, a portable phone. So it, it was a very different world. Um, and I find with each new edition, I'm now in my ninth edition, that world has to change and the book has to reflect that change because now uh, the, uh, the children of the people who read the first generation are now in college, and as, as Alexander said, their world is viewed through a, uh, a small screen. It's a, di- a display in front of them. That's how they negotiate their world. In some ways, that's how they define themselves, how they experience themselves. Uh, I almost get the feeling that so- some of them don't really experience something inside until they've actually posted it um, or snapped it. Uh, I was going to say post it on Facebook, but my feeling about Facebook is it's kind of a geezer uh, social medium now. Um, I I would tend to think that uh, a younger generation is going to be more drawn to Snapchat or or Vine or something like that, but I I think Alexandra would probably have a better read on that than I do because she's with college students all the time. Um, But even that has changed. Our, our, Our world, you know, uh, an edition or two ago of my book, Facebook would have been a relative uh, way of saying how how people, uh, young people, date today. There's a whole protocol. I'm told um, you would never call a woman. A guy would never call a woman. If he did, uh, he he would risk being uh, perceived as a stalker. They have to, uh, first of all, either meet within a group or he'll text her or say, can we get together? And sometimes it'll be a group that'll get together or they'll text her. They'll, they'll have this whole kind of uh, protocol. They'll friend first and then they actually speak. Um, so that's that's kind of a very different thing that's happened since the first edition of my book 20 years ago. Um, 20 years ago with the first edition of my book, you know, a question was, do we sleep with each other on the first date or the second date? So that was in the the 1990s. Well, from what you know, you and Alexander were talking about. In some ways, that's still the question, isn't it? Do we have sex first before we really get to know each other? So that's been a question for a long time now. That's not a a new modern question. Um, but,
2: but I, think I find that to be true because I think again it goes back to. Uh, over the last seven shows i mean the issue of gen, you know uh, generational perspectives keeps coming up but i think the core feelings around is someone going to want me is someone going to desire me is someone going to love me and will someone want to be with me still play out in that humanness and and uh, so yeah i i think those are basic things. Not you know, should I date you know, and and again, should I call first or no, or should I text first? And so there's this kind of Mexican uh, standoff a bit. But um, what do you see positive about technology? I
4: see. I don't see. I guess we're trying to to trying to phrase it as. Gosh, you know, there's this new thing with technology that suddenly happened, and boy, it's, it's also different. Well, technology has been cranking along for a long time now. Um, you know, back at the turn of the last century, uh, going from, from the 1800s to the 1900s, um, technology was a, was a scary thing with the telephone. Uh, people thought the telephone was going to be the end of family values. And then you had the radio, and that was going to be the end of family values because families used to uh, apparently sit around and talk at dinner, but then they started sitting around the radio together. And there's always been these these fears. Well, yes, it changed. Everything changes. It's constantly changing. Technology is changing everything. It it always is. Um, The fear with the telephone is people would arrange to have adulterous affairs. Well, yeah, that's true. Um, But... A lot of other things are true, too. So what we're seeing now is is simply yet another wave of change. It's different to you and I because we're older. Or like Alexandra says... uh you know, we're digital immigrants, although I'm worrying about her when she describes herself that way in case uh, Mr. Trump is elected president. I'm worried <laughs> she's going to be uh, deported, and God only knows where to. Uh,
2: cyberspace. Cyberspace. Yeah. So, yeah. so
4: I would encourage you for the next couple of months until we know he's not elected uh, that you not refer to yourself as as that. Um, <laughs> Point taken. Now, okay, so uh, the the thing I would say is this is just part of the march of time. Yes, it's different. It's way more different to you and I, Jessica, than it probably is to Alexandra, and it's way more different to her than it is to students who grew up in it because to them it's not different at all. It just is. Well, wait a minute. This is the way we do things. What are you talking about? There was a different way.
2: Well, one of the things that I read recently was that we are spending eight hours looking at a screen a day. Eight hours, that's the average for an American. Actually, some countries is even more. Indonesia is like almost 10 hours, but I'm not sure what's going on in Indonesia. But, you know, eight hours of looking at a screen, waiting for something to respond, you know, to us. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm, so I'm, you know, how... 15 15 years,
4: 20 years ago, we were all shocked because uh, people, the average uh, person spent five hours watching television a day. Uh, how's that any different you know in fact I would say the the ten hours a day you're spending in front of the screen is far more interactive a lot of it than the five hours was uh in front of a television so yeah it's it's different um, I spend probably twelve hours a day ten hours a day in front of a screen it's the same it's the same me it's just i, I it's it's just it's different but i don't think it's anything to be Panicked about. Now, in terms of this difference, I'm probably more interested in Alexandra's work in autism, and uh, you, you've got a new book coming out, I think, and helping parents with deal with autistic children, because to me in terms of what's happening with, you know, this wave of technology and relationships is I think we have a lot to learn from autism now about how people communicate when they've grown up communicating with their thumbs rather than speaking and touching. And so uh, that's what I'd love to hear her thoughts, you know, about about that. I, I often describe to... Uh, to people when they ask me, I say, you know what, it, it's kind of sounding like uh, for the new generation, Asperger's is the new normal uh, in some ways. And um, so I, I think that's kind of fascinating, and I think we need to help them with that. Every generation, the elders have needed to help their young with certain things. And, and right now, we need to help young with, uh, our, our young with, I think, how to actually communicate face-to-face, and express emotions face-to-face. Um, I'm, I'm actually, when I talk to sex educators now, I, I think they're they're shocked. I, I, I say, let's give up on this idea that we're ever going to be able to do adequate sex education in the schools. And quite frankly, when kids are watching porn from ages 8 to 11 on, c- c- come on, uh, telling them There's nothing we can tell them that we would be allowed to tell them in school without getting fired that would even be relevant to them. You know, it would be nice if we could talk about female masturbation and orgasms and the clitoris. It would be nice um, if we could educate them about porn, but we can't. We'd be fired in the schools. Schools don't like that. But what they desperately need us to talk about is relationships. They desperately need us to help them... um, Talk about how they can talk to each other, how they can share their feelings. Because when you grow up processing the world through a small display on a phone in front of your hand, it's kind of a challenge that when you're suddenly, that screen is on the bedstand next to the bed and you're suddenly naked in bed with that person. Uh, how do you negotiate life there? That's a new one, right? so I think that's a, a fascinating turn of where we need to be turning to it with sex education and what we need to be helping people with. And, but we
2: are uh, one of the few countries that call it sex education. Most countries refer to it as health. What is sexual health?
4: Well, I guess that's one of the downsides when you were settled by uh, you know, social outcasts and religious fanatics. But it's what we got. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, so um, but, I, I keep hearing, well, this is how it's done in in Finland or or in Sweden. And I say, that's just not relevant to me. Uh, that's not relevant to the people I work with. You know, we're here in America. Uh, we're dealing with uh, presidential candidates who are vowed to shut down Planned Parenthood, who are vowed to um, make a woman's choice, uh, you know, back to the old day of the coat hanger. Um, this is the America we're dealing with today, so this is what we've got to deal with today. and h- how do we then work within that space? That's kind of where I'm working.
2: but I think it's back. an excellent place. you know your space is quite good, and uh, because it does continue a, a I think a really rich discussion when you're saying, you know, how can we help them learn about relationship?" But I go back and, and look at the couples that I see, no matter what their ages are, they're still struggling with relationship. And then to expect that couple in a family to teach then the children what is healthy relationship, that becomes almost impossible. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of where we keep moving it from the adolescents, 20-year-olds, up to the 50- and 60-year-olds who are parents and grandparents. But these are messages. So is there a way that you might suggest that we can be more proactively or, or maybe an approach where we can teach about relationship? Because it's a great statement, Paul. Um, I guess I
4: guess, what I keep layering Anything I do in sex education, with um, like on my video on the clitoris or helping women understand about men's foreskins or whatever, I keep interspersing information with, and I try to use that information to show how different any two people are, and then getting around constantly to the talking point of this is why you have to feel this is why you have to ask a partner, and. Um, one of the problems we have with our default sex educator now, which is porn, yeah. is everything happens by magic. Uh, women, you know, the second a guy gets a hard-on, she's good to go. He can stick it anywhere he wants, and she's just all over him. And they have perfect sex, whatever that is. And so this is, a, this is an unfortunate message, we never did particularly well in our culture talking to each other about what feels good and what doesn't. But this is taking it to a new low, I think, in some ways, uh, because there's even more of an expectation than there ever was that a guy's supposed to magically know how to please a woman, mm-hmm. and that she's almost kind of let down if she thinks she has to tell him what to do. I mean, maybe he's a real loser. Why do I have to tell him? You know, in porn it happens magically. Uh, and I I hear, you know, there's there there tends to be frustration on both sides. Uh, a lot of men will say, God, if she would just tell me, she won't tell me. And I say, well, it, it could be she doesn't know. And maybe she's afraid to let you know that she doesn't know and the two, two of you need to explore together. One of the things that's absolutely blown me away when I speak at colleges, uh, let's say last year or so, uh, a reporter at North Carolina's, you know, I was going to speak there, and she said, um, what are your thoughts about women's masturbation? And I said, what would, why would that even be a question? And she said, well, because it's gross. And I said, what, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, women think it's okay for men to masturbate, but they think it's nasty for women to masturbate. I thought, oh, this is just North Carolina, you know.
2: No, it's um, not. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's,
4: and so I, I, I checked in it's with It's a the North instructor.
2: American or whatever. I, yeah. I
4: checked in with the instructors yeah. at Santa Barbara City College who used my book, where I figured you can't get any more liberal than that. And they said, oh, yeah, nasty. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm thinking, oh, God, we've spent $2 billion on abstinence-only sex education, and look what we've taught. We've taught women that it's nasty to masturbate. Well, how do you... Okay, so... Yes, if a woman thinks, it's a young woman thinks it's nasty to masturbate, how in the hell is she going to tell a guy how to touch her clitoris or what
2: to do where? where? she wants to be touched. Uh, where? Yeah, yeah. She yeah. doesn't
4: even know herself.
2: No. And, I mean, and we're going to have to go for a break, and uh, if I can... You know, Stop you, and I'm so reluctant to do that. But we need to go for a break now, and when we come back, we'll have about nine minutes to kind of begin to wrap some things up.
4: And let's remember let me just say something when we get back about thongs.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's a cliffhanger.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. You are listening to The Sexual Voice with Jessica Ford. To reach our show today, please call one 866 472 578 That's one 866 472 578 You may also send an email to the Sexual Voice at JAFordgroup.com. Now, back to The Sexual Voice.
2: Welcome back to this enlightening and fun conversation. Uh we're at a segue at this point in the show where I'm going to open it up to Paul and Alexandra both and have them share with you a kind of a parting message and also what they're up to. Uh, they both do a lot of touring and they have books coming out and other events. And so, uh, who would like to go first on this round?
3: I'm happy to Go for in. it,
4: Alexandra. Okay. <laughs>
3: All right. Well, what you the biggest were thing that was... I'm... Yeah. The biggest thing I have going on is I'm um, getting ready to, uh, to publish my first book. As, um, Jessica, as you mentioned, it will come out in uh, February 1st, 2017. It's called Loving Bravely and it's a relationship self-help book and it is um, written for individuals and it provides a, a sort of deep dive into self and gives readers a chance to understand who they are and and who they become when they fall in love, and sort of how to navigate the complexities of relationship. And I think that um, I feel like one of my greatest services is is trying to help people understand that relationships aren't something to be solved or fixed or mastered or made simple. Really, the work is growing ourselves and being brave enough to be able to um, take the risks and um, show up and and be seen Um, and so that's really where what the heart of the book is all about and um, certainly I am doing um, some speaking. Um, One event that's coming up that's really a neat one is in um, early May and it's out in Vancouver and it's an event called Masters of the Universe and they're just getting kind of up and running and ready to launch that um, two-day conference that's an opportunity for people to come together and um, focus on the whole person, nutrition and fitness and relationship, skill building, and um, I'm really excited about that.
2: Very good. Um, uh,
4: Alexandra, you, you, uh-huh. were, you, you were just mentioning about um, uh, the issues that uh, especially younger adults, but I think it's, it's now across the board, have with being able to actually have a conversation and and put down a device uh because we see the world through the device and what happens you you know how do you have sex without a device and how long do you wait until after having sex before you you know check your your uh your social media uh I i thought you had a lot of fascinating things to say about that can you can you say some more
3: one of one of the things that I did this year in so it really kind of like clicked for me when, a, when a, one of my students said to me, Professor Solomon, we hook up because we don't know how to talk and we don't know how to talk and so then therefore we hook up. So it ends up being this sort of, vicious, not a vicious cycle, but certainly a back and forth. And so one of the things that I did this year in, in the undergraduate course I teach is I created an assignment called It's a Date and every single one of the students had to ask somebody out on a date and I gave them a list, the length of my arm, of all the rules and parameters for how to do this. But the main thing was they needed to pick up the phone, make a phone call, invite somebody on a date, say here's where we'd, I'd like us to go and here's what I'd like us to do. And they had to make it happen because of what we talked about earlier about the sort of texts that never really go anywhere and we should get together, maybe we want to get together, and then the person disappears on them. So this was my an, an effort towards building up that skill. And the students really took some risks. I was impressed. One of my students told me, oh my gosh, I sat at the coffee shop for literally two hours, picking up the phone, putting it down, picking up the phone, putting it down. And I finally got up the guts to call her and I did it. And he was so proud of himself and, and it was like an opportunity he would not have otherwise had. So it's a bit of a throwback to saying we, we can do better. You, you all can do better than this. If you want to forge a different path, um, you can, you can do it. So it was a little, a little boost in that direction. Well,
2: I know that Paul, you would ask about autism, and uh, you know whether Alexander had written a book on that. But and, and I was wrong.
4: She's, I guess you've written some, an
3: article or two.
2: Okay, and, all right. Okay. But I thought maybe the the some of the listeners might be curious about that.
3: And yeah, my Paul, work on my work mm-hmm. on autism is way on the back burner. Yep.
2: Okay. And Paul, um, what do you? What's coming up for you? And and what would you? like to maybe leave the listeners with?
4: Hmm, with thongs. Thongs. Okay. Uh, those came to mind.
2: Thongs. Uh, okay. And those are, are nice things, sometimes if they're worn what, nicely.
4: What, what? Well, that's the point. People always blame um, women shaving their pubic hair on porn. But guess what? Try to wear a thong with a bunch of pubic hair sticking out the side. Try to wear what? a G-string that way. So I don't really understand why people don't blame women shaving pubic hair on the women's lingerie industry. <laughs> uh, well,
2: it, it isn't that so much as it's what men say when they see the pubic hair and because of their interest in porn, because all the women in porn don't have pubic hair.
4: So, so are men telling the women the to wear
2: thongs? No, no. I, I don't think women... having a teenage
4: daughter, yeah. I can tell you her wanting to wear G-strings and thongs had nothing to do with guys. Um, <sighs>
2: No, but the women who have commented about this said it's because the men had said they were dirty because they had hair, so that that's where that came from.
0: Um, so that was yeah. the
2: point. But so if thongs yeah. are okay, uh, Alexandra, is there anything you would <laughs> like to leave the listeners with? <laughs>
3: Yeah, uh, you know, I was um, I was all up in arms one day about the whole pubic hair issue, and one of my colleagues who's an anthropologist by training, he was like, Alexandra, calm down. Cultures throughout the ages have done all kinds of things with their body hair. Like, that's not the issue. And I see what he means about the issue of whether we have pubic hair or don't have pubic hair is secondary to the issue of can we tune into our bodies understand who we are sexually, communicate that to a partner who can hear and honor and respect who we are and what we need sexually, and that really is the heart of the matter. But man, it's tempting to get distracted on all these kind of um, side roads that can feel troubling or triggering or we can make judgments about, but I think it's, I know my, my work in this area is to kind of find my way back to, okay, the main heart of the message with Paul you said so well a bit ago is about Really honoring the need to be able to communicate back and forth. I love this. I need more of that. I need less of that. Here's where my boundary is. You know, back up, come closer. That's that's what matters most.
4: You know, um, one of the things I was hoping with with the shaving pubic hair thing would be that it would c- create more of a bond with women and their genitals, and they'd want to explore them more. I mean, you're down yeah. there shaving. Why wouldn't you want to explore and feel around? And whoa. Well, they go to oh, cool. the
2: esthetician, and the esthetician is the one who engages in that. Well, variant, no, so. women yeah.
4: shave mm-hmm. at home. I mean, I'm ninety percent of yeah. pubic hair comes off with a razor, uh, but uh, it hasn't. It hasn't. It doesn't seem to have that an impact. Uh, mm-hmm. Young women are just as just as hesitant now to masturbate and learn about their bodies and stick their fingers up there and everything as as they've ever been, and that's very discouraging.
3: I agree 100%. I've had many college students tell me that they, uh, women with long sexual histories um, who have yet to have an orgasm, and it's, and when I ask the question, have you masturbated, Like, do you know how to create an orgasm within your own body? Yeah, they look at me like I just sprouted a second head. You know, that that's really a foreign idea. So well, this is I one think of the that problems. all the work this you're doing to break down the, tabo- the taboos around uh, masturbation and understanding your own body, I, mean, I think the more that we can do that and create an atmosphere that's really positive towards not expecting somebody else to bring to you something that you don't know how to bring to yourself. I think it's really
2: yeah, what important. One of the, what the well, issues... I, I'm uh, going to have to say, I'm okay. so sorry to break up this delightful conversation. It really, really is. And, uh, but maybe we can try to do this again another time. Because we're at the end of the show, and I want to thank you both so much for this. This has been great and very lively, and I appreciate it so much. And so I'm sure our listeners do too. So thank you. I'm getting ready to close, and I'm going to ask all of you to join me next week for mindfulness, personal intimacy, and presence with self. Uh, Kind of a nice segue. Thank you both. Uh, And that's going to be with Lori Bratto. And she is a notable practitioner of mindfulness interventions, and uh, she's going to be uh, talking on this topic. And as I close, I'm going to encourage you to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And so I'm going to say goodbye for now. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, healthy sex begins with you. Join me next Friday, and we'll continue to explore and talk some more.
0: Thank you for joining Jessica and her guests today on The Sexual Voice. Please tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, and 12 noon Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy your sexual self, and please join us here next Friday.